Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Hey, everybody. Thank you for inviting me into your home this weekend. I hope you are having a great week. It is Halloween week, so happy Halloween, everybody. As you can see, I am uh, dressed up for the occasion <laughs> with my uh, generic Halloween costume. Uh, we're actually going to go to a Halloween party tonight. I've got a much better costume. Um but I don't have any of the props or anything here for it, but it's kind of fun. So anyway, um, I hope you guys are having a good good week, good time. And I hope that you will check out my podcast this week. I really, really want to plug it because I really want you guys to watch it. Um, it's really important to me. I am sort of taking on a bit of a challenge, maybe long term. We'll see. Um, there is a fight to be fought in academia regarding cults and uh, people being, you know, us former cult members actually being listened to and believed. Uh, this is a big problem. It's not a small problem. It's not a problem that necessarily touches your life, but um, it certainly touches mine. And and uh, there are consequences. There are ripple effects. There are longer term issues at at play here. So, because um, it's been decades that uh, former cult members and you know uh, people who have escaped high control groups and situations. Uh, just don't get listened to um, in academia by, you know, by sociologists, by religious studies professors, by people who matter. Um, and so I kind of broke that down in the podcast this week, and I'd like you guys to check that out. Uh, it's a difficult topic for me, uh, even to this day still. And so um, so it's, uh, it's a little contentious for me, but I'm doing my best to try to stay level-headed and even-keeled and uh, be kind of, a, you know, a academic about it, even if I can't be fully objective about it, which I which I acknowledge. So anyway, uh, there is that. And then, of course, we had a really fun time doing our uh, live stream this week, uh, which I hope you'll also check out about Facebook. And um, I, I will also be answering a question in this show about my decision to leave Facebook. So uh, but if you want to hear some um, some, you know, ranting and raving and 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 talk about social media and about Facebook, then uh, check out our live show. Mel and I had a great time. All right, those plugs being done, let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. Steve Wood. As we know, Scientologists are all in on their belief about Scientology, no matter what they hear to the contrary. Nothing seems to be able to change that point of view. At what point do Scientologists cross that line into this state of mind? Thanks for this question, Steve. And I thought that this might be a good opportunity to comment on the subject of extremism and extreme belief, uh, because it's what your question asks about. But I thought it was an opportunity for me to talk about it in a broader sense, actually. I could focus and narrow in just on Scientology and how weird Scientologists are. And um, and and that's I, I don't say that in any kind of like, you know, to you, Steve, or anybody in particular, just you know, it's not just Scientology that has this sort of extremity of belief. And so I thought, let's talk about that for first. What do we mean by somebody who's all in or, or an extreme belief set, right? When we talk about people who are in a cult mindset, we're talking about people who are in this sort of, ex we, we talk about this in extremist terms. We talk about radicalized uh, terrorists, you know, and in an extremist belief set. Yet also in um, the big wide world, there are people, uh, especially in the atheist community, who believe that all religious belief is extremism. 
who believe that Christianity as expressed in certain denominations in the United States is extremism by the quality or nature of the belief. And I wanted to differentiate that uh, because when I talk about extremism, I'm not talking about what the belief is, what the content of the belief is. Um, because, well, because let's be honest, way too many of us believe really silly things. <laughs> um, now, and and if you look at extreme belief as the content of the belief is something you disagree with or you don't think is true and therefore that's extreme, that would be wrong. That would be a wrong way to think about what extremism is because extremism isn't just something you extremely disagree with. <laughs> Um, if that were the case, everybody would be an extremist in one fashion or another, according to other people, because they'd be judging you based on how much they morally or philosophically or factually disagree with your belief. You put out a belief, you know, blue Smurfs are real. I, I you know, I think blue Smurfs are, 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 are secretly running the world or whatever. And you've got this hardcore belief. And uh, somebody might look at that and go, Smurfs aren't real. That's ridiculous. And you're an extremist. That would be wrong. Uh, if, for, if, if that was the judgment call is I don't agree with that belief. Therefore, it's wrong. Therefore, you're an extremist. That is not what I have ever meant by talking about extremism. And I don't think, generally speaking, that's how it should be thought about. Um, because, like I said, the, the logical end result of that is everybody's an extremist. And while that seems to be the common thinking these days on the, both sides of the political ideological divides that we are uh, experiencing, it's just not true. It's not, it, and it's a wrong way to think about it, okay? What we are talking about when we're talking about extremism is we are talking about the level of belief, the, the dedication or commitment to a belief or a belief set or a dogma. And, um, and that is something that you can gauge or judge with anybody on any single belief or belief set. You can rate, survey, ask them, interrogate them, talk to them about, you know, how much are you in on this? And in fact, when doing street epistemology, which I've, which I've talked about here, and we've had Anthony Magnabosco on to talk about that, uh, street epistemology is a way of interrogating somebody else about not only the nature of their belief, but how much they are in on that belief. And uh, you ask questions like, you know, from a zero to 10, how certain are you that blah, blah is true, right? Whatever, you know, religious belief or social belief or whatever. Okay, so Steve, you asked me, how do Scientologists get there? So first, I just wanted to kind of clarify what we mean by extremism, because we're talking about level of belief, not quality or nature of belief, okay? So that being clarified, what you're going to find with people is a couple factors play into when somebody goes all in on something. Um, there are, I've talked about emotional needs, and that's a kind of a broad term. It's, you know, it includes a lot of stuff, but it's a, it's a way that it, it communicates easily, I think, right? And what you have with people who are um, another factor as well, in addition to emotional needs, you also have every person has a sort of bar 
for evidence, for their belief, for, for when they're going to commit to something being true or not. That bar is raised and lowered depending on emotional investment, but it's also raised and lowered depending on uh, social investment, right? Social credibility, social um, currency, belief holds social currency for people, right? You can get status because of belief. You can get income because of belief. You can get all kinds of things because of your professed belief or faith in something. This is not just in religion, but, you know, in any sort of endeavor. I mean, in terms of business, who are the people who are, um, you know, stereotypically at least, represented as the people who are moving up the corporate ladder, taka, 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 and making the big bucks are the people who are all in on the company. They're like, um, you know, they're dedicated. They're 70 hours a week. They're 80 hours a week. They're, you know, they're sleeping at the office. These are, you know, this is sort of the stereotypical view of how you really succeed in big business. I think still to this day, this is a stereotype that's, that's portrayed out there, unless you guys want to correct me on that. Um, that's an extreme belief set, right? That's, that's a, you know, let's go extreme, 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 right? That's like all in. So it's not just in the world of Scientology that people can get this kind of extremist all in sort of thinking. Um, and the reason why people do that is because they feel for some reason that it benefits them or it is necessary for them morally, financially, psychologically, socially, it's necessary for some reason for them to go all in. Um, maybe they believe that by going all in, like a Scientologist, for example, that they will be rewarded, that that is the way that they exchange with the group or the way that they invest in the group so that the group will invest back in them. That was my thing. I was all in on Scientology because I believed that by going all in on it, I would receive the maximal amount of reward back for it. And it wasn't, this isn't necessarily just ego or selfishness, because I was far from a selfish person when I was a Scientologist, but um, especially as a Sea Org member, right? But it was a matter of my personal belief that by going all in, the group would go all in back to me and it would be an even fair exchange didn't turn out to be that way, and it never is that way with destructive cults. That's that's another way, in fact, of describing the problem with destructive cults or with groups that people have problems with is they go all in for the group, and the group doesn't go all in for them. So, um, and that's that creates power imbalances and disparities and and personal problems and, and group problems. So, um, but as long as a person believes or thinks that the group or the belief set is, is beneficial to them, is going to lead to some kind of promise or hope or, or realization of, of physical, financial, emotional, you know, social benefit, um, that they'll go all in on that stuff to that degree. And, um, and extremism is a point where, you know, with this all-in business, it's where you basically give over all of your trust, all of your faith. Everything you've got to give, you give it to this thing, to this group, this idea, this belief. And that is something that we sort of 
subliminally sort of, you know, unconsciously and, you know, instinctively, we kind of have this idea that that's a good thing, you know, that you, that you commit unconditionally to your romantic partner that you, or your wife or husband or spouse, right? That you go all in for your team in sports or in, in some hobby you might have. You know, we show montages in movies of people training and dedicating themselves and working, working, working. And the more you invest, the more you're going to succeed. And, and we have this idea, a very, very basic, basic idea um, as a species, I believe, I think this is universal, that, that this level of commitment is actually a really good thing. And it's not. And this is one of those things like critical thinking where our natural tendency or idea or desire to go do a thing isn't necessarily in our best interests uh, in all contexts. You know, there isn't, I don't think that there's particularly anything wrong in being very, very thoroughly invested in something. But let's call that 80%. Let's call that 90%. When you go 100%, we're talking now about suicide bombers. We're talking about cultists. We're talking about uh, radicalized terrorists who are 100% committed to their cause to the point that they're willing to kill themselves for it. You know, you're not even going to find Scientologists at that level of dedication when push comes to shove. You know, there are not very many Scientologists who would blow themselves up for the church. That is a that is that is you know true extremism, and Scientologists move into that level of extremism that that band you could say. So do people or members of every other religion on the planet. Every one of them have their extremists, and some of those groups, of course, as a group, are extremists, and that's what we call cults, right? Like the Westboro Baptists, for example. And it's a spectrum; it's not a black and white binary. So, um, so you have varying degrees of this. Okay, so the the reason I bring it up as a point that is sort of not really, uh, you know, uh, right or good is because. Your critical thinking declines to the degree that you're committing yourself all in to a belief set or a group. And that means that your objectivity is declining to the degree you do that, which means your good sense and your ability to rationally think through, you know, good and bad, plus and minus of this thing, this subject, this belief, this area um, declines if you are, you know, committing yourself emotionally and, and financially, socially, et cetera, to this thing. Okay. So it's not a good thing to do that. Now that's not to say that you should be hands off and backed off from everything you ever, you know, want. It means you need to have, you need to keep your head on straight and you need to keep a good head on your shoulders about perspective. There is no such thing as an absolute good. It just doesn't exist. It's a, it's a fantasy. It's a, it's a construct we invent in order to be able to compare things to it. But there is no realistic, real-world absolute good, nor is there an absolute bad. But you can, um, you can represent this in your mind that way and get this extreme idea that you need to be fully embracing this thing or you're not a good person or you're not a moral person or there's something wrong with you. And that is, that's, again, it's wrong-headed thinking, right? You want to always maintain 
perspective, some distance from everything you believe, everything you think, everyone you know. You always have to keep in reserve that little bit of critical thinking, that little bit of mm, nah, mm, not so sure about that, don't know about that, maybe that's not right, there could be something wrong with that. Always, always, always being willing to push back and think twice about the thing that you are committing to or looking at or wanting to be part of. So um, this is a lot of advice thrown into the middle of this question, but I just, I wanted to grab the opportunity for that because, you know, we've talked about Scientology extremist beliefs lots and lots and lots of times, but the, the point where it turns extremist is when the person makes a dedicated, conscientious decision that this thing is more important than anything else in the world to them, you know, in that moment. And they commit to that and decide that that is going to be their operating basis from this point forward. And that can be in Christianity, that can be in Scientology, that can be in, you know, at IBM. That can be anything. You can commit, go all in on anything. And doing so is unhealthy. And uh, it's, not, it's not a good idea uh, to go 100% all in on anything. Um, but people do it. They, it is represented as a good thing. It is represented as a faithful thing. It is represented as a as a moral thing to do, and everybody's got their head on backwards about that. It's uh, it's highly manipulative to push people in those directions. Uh, people should always have free will and a power of choice to review and examine and think critically about anything they're involved in, whether it's a relationship or job, a belief, whatever. Um, so I think that's kind of how it happens. I, I, I'm speaking rather broadly because it's a broad question for a broad topic. But I hope that this has given some degree of insight into extreme belief and, and Scientology and, and how that works. Oscar Q. Zilch. Do you have any good stories about someone getting busted for joking and degrading? All right. Joking and degrading. That is a, a Scientology policy that um, basically states, actually, it's a bulletin, where Hubbard basically says that people who laugh at Scientology or, or any subject matter that they're involved in, when they shouldn't be, or which, which is a serious thing, you know, um, they're joking and degrading. And it's actually a sign of psychosis, right? Hubbard did not appreciate people laughing at him or at Scientology. He called it a deadly serious activity. Only the tigers survive, and even they have a hard time. These are, these are things Hubbard used to describe the seriousness with which Scientology can, should be considered. Now, the double bind in Scientology is at the same time he introduces this concept of the spirit of play and says that anybody who's too serious and solid is uh, not going to ever get anything done and is kind of uh, an idiot. So, you know, there's your double bind, right? But joking and degrading was a real serious thing. And in fact, I believe it might even be listed as one of the crimes you can commit in Scientology. It's, it's just not okay to be joking about it. Um, and of course, by joking, we mean, you know, putting it down, punching, you know, uh, uh, down, I guess, on Scientology or uh, making fun of it, ridiculing the practice of it in any way, something like that. And this included, and here I'm going to give you a real example now. And this is what's real standout for me because it was pretty funny. Um, in Scientology, there's a word called cognition. Now, in the real world, cognition is, is a word that represents thought or thinking or the process of, you know, neurons moving around and stuff like that. That is what we think of in psychology or in neuro, neuroscience as cognition is when that process is going on. 
But in Scientology, a cognition is a special thing. It is a certain sudden realization or sudden uh, coming to knowledge or awareness on a particular subject or thing. So you could have a cognition in a session. And in fact, auditing sessions are not ended until you have a cognition of some kind. You have to. It's one of the things that it's one of the four things you have to experience in order for an auditing process to be completed. Any auditing process. It's a floating needle, a cognition. Let's see, FN, VG, yeah, very good indicators and a release. Uh, uh, bing, you know, the mental mass is gone. It, it released. So FN, a floating needle on the e-meter, e a cognition. Oh, hey, what do you know? I didn't know this before, but now, or, oh, I didn't realize until now my mother actually loved me. I thought she hated me all this time, you know? Oh, that's a call to cognition or a cog. And, uh, and Scientologists love having and talking about their cognitions or their cogs, okay? However, there was, a, there was a joking and degrading term that went around for a long time that was called a bognition, <laughs> okay? A bognition. This is not a Hubbard term. It's not a Scientology term. It's not authorized. It's a joke. And it's, and it's, uh, and it's viewed by Scientology officials as not acceptable, you do not talk about bognitions or spread that around. And a bognition, of course, is where you have a realization about something, but it makes you feel worse. <laughs> you know, uh, oh, I guess she hates me. Uh, that's a bognition, right? Yeah, you have a sudden realization, but you feel worse. You feel bogged, right? Yeah, as though you're put in a swamp, right? Uh, as a result of that. So this was a very funny term, and a lot of us laughed about this and spread this around. But there was a guy, they, there's, a, there's a method uh, in Scientology of using an e-meter to trace down and investigate where things like that come from. They call it rollback. I've, I've done videos about it before. You can find it on my Critical Clips channel. If you look up what is rollback, you'll find a video on it. Uh, but that procedure can be used to trace down who's been saying what to who. And it's basically a method of tracking down rumors or, or, or black, uh, black propaganda, as Hubbard calls it. So, um, so you put a person on a meter and you say, okay, so you've been using this word bognition. Where'd you hear this from? Who told you this, right? And the guy goes, ah, I don't remember. Well, we're going to sit here until you do. So come up with a name, right? Who, where'd you come up with this? Oh, it was Joe Schmo, right? And then they go and get Joe Schmo, and they put him on the meter. Okay, you've been spreading this word bognition around. You're a bad Scientologist. You're a very bad person. How dare you make these jokes? Where'd you hear that from, right? Trace, trace, trace it back down to where it came from. And it was found in this particular case, if I'm remembering this right, that the guy who ended up spreading this word all over the United States was a registrar, a sales guy, a Sea Org member from ASHO, from the American St. Hill. They would send, as part of their week-to-week -week operations, they would send tours around to the orgs all over the West and East U.S. and Latin America, too. And the American St. Hill covers Canada, Latin America, and the United States. So they would send salespeople around, regs. Uh, to the various Scientology churches and, and try to sell them, you know, St. Hill services. Uh, and in doing so, this one reg 
spread this word all over the place because he thought it was hilarious and he would joke about it to people and they would pick it up and they here's a Sea Org member joking about a Bognition. So they start joking about it and it spreads around and they tell two friends and they tell two friends and so on and so on, right? And uh, that's how it spread. So when they finally got people on an e-meter and they took it down to where'd this come from, it went back to this reg. Now he had not invented the term but he got busted hard for spreading it all over the place. So that was a uh, story about that, um, about somebody getting busted for, for J&D. That's what they call it, J&D. And he had to get, do a whole ethics handling and write up all of his overts and withholds and, you know, get straight on uh, spreading disaffection and joking and degrading because that's how they took it. They took it very seriously. And that's the story I have to relate to you about that. There you go. Anonymous, I recently came across Scientology as I'm interested in finding out life's truths, which unfortunately may involve sometimes learning about people who believe in a fantasy. As a young scientist, objective worldly questions are heavily on my mind. I thought it might be interesting to discuss the concept of scientism, the way in which it's comparable to Scientology, and when this belief can actually become a bad thing. Okay, scientism. Um... As far as how it compares with Scientology, scientism is a belief set just like any other belief set. So I don't think it really has, it doesn't stand out to me as anything special or unique or different um, compared to Scientology's belief set or Christian belief sets or Islamic belief sets or, um, I don't know, lots of other belief sets. I mean, in terms of religious belief or, or dedicated uh, dogmatic belief, which doesn't have to be religious in nature. Um, I just look at scientism as just another sort of extreme end of belief. And we, and in the earlier question I answered here today, you know, I talked about this levels of, of belief as a definition for extremism. And scientism is where you basically go all in on science. It's science as an ideology. I actually pulled up this um, blog article from simplicable.com. Uh, where a guy wrote up about scientism, and, and, he, and he says, where science is a practice and body of knowledge, its principles and methods can also be adopted as an expansive belief or doctrine. The term scientism has distinctly negative connotations as being an expansion of science into unwarranted situations or excessive claims that aren't supported by current scientific knowledge. Um, so, in terms of some examples of this, um, scientism is associated with wild claims that science can solve problems that are currently considered well beyond its reach. For example, claiming that science is the only source of knowledge and that all other descriptions of reality in areas such as social science and the humanities have little value. Now, this is expressed, I've seen, in social media with people talking about materialism or a materialistic point of view and how there can't be anything beyond the material. Now, I happen to be a materialist, but I'm open to the idea that there is more to be experienced, seen, or learned in the world than just what is physical, right? There are things that we share, experiences we have that are, that are explainable beyond just chemical reactions. But a scientism follower, a person who was really into science, it, all in on it in this sense, right, um, 
would, well, here, naive materialism, viewing all things in terms of physical processes and what can be measured, viewing her humans in terms of biochemistry with little regard to the bigger picture, such as the human experience and culture. And I see this mistake made uh, by um, people in the skeptic uh, community where they try to reduce everything down to biochemical reactions or chemicals in your brain as terms of thought or things like that. And it's really, it's, it's just siloing too specifically. It's, it's, it's being exclusionary because you're not taking into account sociology or social patterns or, you know, broader uh, influencers of conduct than just what goes on in our brain. You know, we are influenced by far more than just our own chemical processes in the brain. Social uh, hierarchies that we're involved in, culture, morality. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on there. So to bring that, to try to reduce that down to it's all just materialism and it's all just chemical processes would be an example of scientism and uh, wrong-headed thinking, right? So really, it's again, it's a matter of that extremism, that, that, you know, taking the level and driving it up to 11 and saying this is all there is and nothing else can be part of this picture. And it's, it's really... It's simplistic. It's reductionist, right? It really tries to bring things down to very simple, easy to understand terms when the the reality of the human experience is is a very vastly complicated experience. And it's a very, very multi-leveled experience. We experience reality in it maybe 20 different planes or or spheres of of description you could you could talk about. At once, you know, we are, we got all kinds of things going on with us all the time in terms of how you break down what human beings are doing and how we experience the world. So to try to reduce it down to just this or just that and then back that up with science and say, well, science is the reason that it's only this or it's only that or, or whatever the reductionist idea is, that's that would be wrongheaded thinking, right? It's trying to... Um, just make a complicated world too simple. And science does a brilliant job of discovering probabilities, how things could be, should be, might be, um, you know, probably are. But science isn't about binary black and white truths. It doesn't work that way. And people who think of science that way aren't really thinking about it correctly because science is a continual, constant repetitive process of discovery and discovery. The thing about discovery is once you discover one thing, it opens the door to discovering another thing that you couldn't see before. And then once you discover that it opens the door to the next thing, which you couldn't see before. And so every new step opens up a door of possibility into a whole nother realm of discovery. And that's no matter what subject or what area science is exploring, that's how it works. So if you're looking for solid answers that never change, science isn't where you're going to find them. Religion is where you find those answers. And that's very comforting for some people, but it's not really a very accurate reflection of reality. And that's, you know, its own level of problem. But that's not what we're talking about with this question. We're talking about scientism. So you can go too far with science. You can go all in on the dogmatic belief set with science and be just as wrong as somebody who is a flat earther. So, um, so science is no, you know, pillar of truth and there is no other truth and there can't be any other way of looking at truth. That, that's just not an accurate reflection of, of the human experience. So 
Uh, that's what I can comment on about that. And of course, everything I just said about scientism is true for Scientology, you know, and any other uh, radical or extreme belief set. So there you go. AC. I heard you are leaving Facebook in response to Zuckerberg's craven quest for world domination. Out of curiosity, have you looked into how much your Facebook presence directs traffic to your site and videos slash podcasts? I totally get how you feel. I'm reminded, though, of what I once heard a doctor say on NPR in response to a caller who mentioned that she saw a glitch in the vaccination system and should she use it to jump the line. The doctor's response shocked me. Your job is to take care of you and your family. It is someone else's job to design the system. Look out for number one. Her point is that her use of the glitch isn't going to move the needle. As a critical thinker, have you weighed the positive value your work does with the Facebook system against the impact of your action? I'm no Facebook shrill, but was curious how you came to your conclusion. All right. Thank you very much, AC, for asking me about this. Um, we did the show. We talked about this a little bit, but I didn't really make the moral argument. And the reason that I left Facebook was not because I critically thought through the pluses and minuses of Facebook's uh, reach or um, my ability to, to, to uh, you know, drop my content on Facebook and get people to pick it up. Um, I might well lose reach and subscribers and um, potential subscribers as a result of doing this. And I am cognizant of that fact. And it does worry me a little bit. I did look into it slightly, but I didn't go deep into my YouTube analytics to figure out where people are coming from because this was not a question for me of productivity or views or subscribers for my channel. This was a moral question for me, and this was actually along the same lines as why I left the Sea Org and eventually left Scientology. Um, it wasn't a matter of the dogma being wrong or the belief set being wrong or me having the idea that something about Scientology wasn't, you know, wasn't uh, doing it for me. It was the fact that I was telling lies. And I was telling lies every goddamn day. And I start and I suddenly realized I couldn't live with myself doing that. And I had been able to rationalize it and justify it and figure out ways that it made sense. For years, I was able to do that uh, because I believe so strongly in the power of Scientology and the purpose and mission that we were engaged in. And I thought, this is what my life needs to be dedicated to. And yeah, sometimes you got to, you know, break some eggs to make the omelet. Sometimes you got to, you know, lie to the person in order to get them to the truth. I mean, you, you really do some mental pretzeling, you know, to, to make this stuff make sense. But that's, of course, what it means to be in a destructive cult is you have to do those kind of mental gymnastics. And once I woke up to the fact that I was playing moral gymnastics with myself and that I was having to bend things around and that my morality really wasn't about that at all. And I was, I mean, from since the time I was a kid, I was very, very much into being honest and I, and I was really, really, you know, kind of hurt me when I wasn't and I, and it would weigh on me. It was like that, you know, a famous albatross around my neck. I just, I could not keep secrets from my parents for long periods of time. I couldn't, you know, do engage in, in campaigns of bad behavior towards people or stuff like that. Not not openly, not blatantly, not premeditatedly, you know, sure, we all make mistakes. I made plenty of them, but 
But I wasn't trying to ever be vicious or mean or nasty with people or purposefully lie to them. It really grated on me if I ever did that. And, and, um, and it still does, right? I, I, don't, I, I don't like doing that. So, um, so here I was faced with the, with three, it was, it took three separate rounds of Facebook revelations to come out. I mean, this has been something I've been plagued with for years. I have been concerned about and wondering about, you know, whether I should be a product of Facebook because we're all products of Facebook. Let's not forget. You're not using that platform. That platform's using you. And if you don't have that really clearly in mind, then you really don't get what Facebook is about. Um, and I'm not, I'm just not making that up. I'm not like in some weird conspiracy world. That's an acknowledged truth now. Facebook is not your friend and never was. It is a blatantly manipulative platform that um, psychologically manipulates every single person who uses it. And whether you feel you're being manipulated or not doesn't matter. I didn't feel I was being manipulated as a Scientologist for 27 years until I suddenly realized, oh, I am. <laughs> and, you know, and now I've detailed to you guys in grim detail exactly how I was manipulated and exactly the techniques that were utilized to manipulate me. And those techniques work. And they work. What we mean by that is when they work, it means you don't know you're being fucked with. I mean, to be blunt, right? And that's what Facebook does. That's what all social media platforms are doing to one degree or another. And they are destructive to our good mental health. Period. It's, it's, it, this is not controversial anymore. So, um, so those were the things that were weighing on my mind. And I thought, can I contribute to this? Should I contribute to this? Or should I, you know... Take the little stand I'm going to take, say the little statements I'm going to say, and do my part to try to do some tiny, tiny, tiny degree of good rather than con continue to contribute to something that I know is wrong, I know is bad for me, and I know is bad for other people. Yes, it's a medium for me to be able to share my work with other people, and my work helps people. I know that's true. Uh, that's not some egotistical statement. It's it's why I do what I'm doing is so I can help people. So I know it does that. And I know that by sharing that content through Facebook and other social media, I am potentially helping people. But by doing that, I'm also saying, hey, I really want you guys to be on these platforms so you can get my information, so you can get my content and the truth is I don't want people on those platforms and I don't want them to have to go to those platforms in order to get my content. You can just go to YouTube directly and get it from there. And that's about as much social media as I really want to engage in other than um, Twitter. I'm on Twitter because it's fast, easy, and it's a, and it's a very simple way for me to kind of um, just express myself and my frustrations. And it's really just more of a venting platform for me. I know Facebook is for other people too. Um, being aware of the manipulation that occurs on Twitter, um, it's you know it's not a justifiable position for me. It's not like Twitter is so much better than Facebook, but it's what I've reduced myself down to is just that one single platform to uh, be in touch with people who I otherwise would not be able to be in touch with and have something to put my content out on in terms of a social media platform. So. 
Um, so that's what I'm doing right now. You know, it is entirely possible. Uh, and in fact, not even, well, it's, it's certainly a difficult task, but it's not impossible for social media to not be destructive. It's, it's, it's completely possible for a platform to be created that doesn't have nasty algorithms, that isn't trying to sell you things 24-7, that isn't fixated on having you be their product. Those, those things could exist, and I hope that in the future they will exist. And um, I hope that we see a, a huge paradigm shift in how the internet is utilized and how social media is utilized. I think we have to if we're going to uh, survive as a species, to be honest with you, because social media is literally tearing our society apart. Um, that is not an exaggeration. It's not an overstatement. It's not some wild-ass conspiracy theory. It's, it's fact. So I don't want to contribute to that anymore, and I don't want um, – I'm not – you know, this is as much soapboxing as I'm going to do about it, though. You know, people are going to remain on social media regardless of what I have to say about it, and they're going to continue to be taken in by Mark Zuckerberg no matter what I say about it. But I have to be, live with myself, and in order to live with myself, I have to be honest and true to myself. And that's what drove this decision on Facebook, not – engagement with you guys. If my engagement suffers as a result of this, that's the consequence I'm going to have to live with. But I, and, and it was, and it was the reason I put off this decision for so long was fear of that. But I just, I, I just reached my own boiling point and I couldn't take it anymore. I know some of you guys will hear this and think I'm being, you know, ridiculous, nonsensical, exaggerated, you know, degrees of, of importance of this. These are my choices, and these are the choices I've decided to make and why I've made them. So you don't have to agree with me, but, you know, it was yast. This is the explanation I have for you. And there you go. Johnny No Stars. Just watched your latest Q&A, and the question about flunking and bull baiting suddenly brought up a personal memory from ProTRs. Since blinking always means a flunk, is there a certain acceptable rate at which one is allowed to blink, or when does it become too much? Since birth, I've had dry eyes that cause me to blink a lot more often than people normally do unless I use moisturizing eye drops. This really got me into trouble while doing the TRs, and at one time, the AO Pro TRs course supervisor started yelling at me with the whole course room full to stop fucking blinking already. And he wasn't the only one doing the TRs with me, so it wasn't part of any bull bait. Then he would just angrily stare at me for hours from the side, so I was basically confronting two people at the same time. Is this, quote-unquote, normal course supervising, or what would you have done with a case like mine in the past? All right, Johnny, thank you for this question. Yeah, somebody was making a mountain out of a molehill with you on that, that's for sure. There was a bulletin issued in the early 90s, actually, when the ProTRs course was sort of revised and gone over and they pulled a whole bunch of new information up on critiquing TRs and on blinkless TRs. And there was a bulletin issued about it, which specifically stated that uh, sitting there trying not to blink was itself not being there comfortably confronting. So you really shouldn't put all this attention on people's eyeballs. He then, of course, being Hubbard, couldn't help himself. He threw a double bind in there of, of course, any competent auditor can easily do a two-hour blinkless confront, but it's not required in order to get a pass on the drill. 
Thank you, Ron, for making me feel like a schmuck because I can't sit here for two hours without blinking because any truly competent auditor can do it. But this supervisor you mentioned in your example was completely off the rails to be yelling at you like that, especially in the middle of the course room. That was just rude. I, I wonder if I know who that supervisor was. Anyway, the... Um, yeah, the, uh, the the pro TRs course is the professional TRs course, by the way. The TRs are the training routines where you're staring at each other. And so, uh, so yeah, that was uh, good times all around there. But as far as the blankless TRs go, um, it's really not a standard that anybody is totally held to anymore these days. There was um, an issue from, I think, 1971 where Hubbard talked about how you got to just kind of push through that and 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 get through it and, and get yourself to be able to do blinkless TRs. But um, the physical reality is that we have to blink our eyes. And, um, and if you're sitting there excessively trying to keep your eyes staring wide open at a person for hours on end, you are going to have real serious problems. But you're also obviously not doing the drill as written. So, you know, you have to, the, the most important thing about TR0, whether it's TR0, TR0, OTTR0, TR0, TR0 bull bait, the most important part of what you're trying to learn in doing that drill is to learn how to just sit there and be comfortable doing that, just not doing anything. You're just sitting there doing nothing. And the idea is to get comfortable doing that so that you can audit somebody for hours and not be distracted by your butt hurting or feeling like you've been stuck in this room for too long or, you know, you can't stand sitting there for another minute and this pre-clear is just driving you crazy. You know, that's the entire mindset you're not supposed to be in as an auditor. And these drills are supposed to set it up so that you're not. Uh, now, of course, that's the positive description of it. <laughs> you know, the negative description, of course, is that, um, you know, you are purposefully putting yourself into a trance state, and that might not necessarily be such a great idea either. Uh, anyway, so that's what I can say about that. But yeah, you got some bad supervision there, Johnny, and I would not have supervised you that way if I was uh, overseeing your TRs. <laughs> All right, let's do some flash answers. Jonathan Perry. Hey, Chris, in today's clip, you mentioned that Xenu was imprisoned in a mountain, but after that, the Markab Confederation turned into a desert. Why? If the bad guy was gone, why did society decline? Why weren't the officers able to rebuild? Okay, Jonathan, I want you to remember the other part of the Xenu narrative, which is that billions and trillions of beings, souls, us, were transported to one planet, Tegiak, right? All the other planets were basically depopulated in this fantasy fever dream of Hubbard's. So trillions of beings are brought to Earth and are destroyed on Earth. Their bodies are annihilated in atomic bombs, and they are put through weeks of spiritual re-implanting and are completely, completely screwed up. I mean, these are, to say these are traumatized beings would be, you know, the, the understatement of the millennia. Um, so everybody's now stuck on Earth. There are energy shields keeping them here. Now, Xenu gets taken out by the loyal officers who weren't here. 
Because Earth became a, a desert. I mean, there was just nothing really going on here for millions of years. You know, life had to evolve again and bodies and all that crap, at least according to kind of how you think through the narrative of what, what happens after. Because Hubbard really doesn't get into it. But if you sort of think about it, you go, well, this would have to happen and this would have to happen because life has to evolve again so that we're here. So, um, so that process goes on. These other planets have basically been strip mined of people and, um, and nobody's going back to them right away because everybody got stuck here. So as far as, um, you know, why was it a desert for the next 76 million years, as Hubbard says, all the way up to present time, it's because everybody here has been living this sort of insane asylum, kicked in the head existence uh, ever since the, the whole Xenu narrative incident went down. And um, and anyway, that's that's why <laughs> it's I mean, it's all a fantasy anyway, but but that's why. Kevin Zay, which Star Trek Klingon character is your favorite? Also, using the same criteria, which character is your favorite recurring antagonist? My favorites both come from DS9. General Martok is my favorite Klingon. When it comes to antagonists, I am fond of all the characters that Jeffrey Combs played. But Wayon is my favorite. All right. Uh, thanks, Kevin. I am not a DS9 guy, so I don't even know these people you're referring to. I know I suck at that, but I am an original series and movie guy. That's my Star Trek. And as far as um, my favorite Klingon, it was General Kang in the movie uh, Star Trek, The Undiscovered Country. I think that was Star Trek VI. Um, that was played by, uh, he was played by Christopher Plummer. He had the eye patch and he was bald and I thought he was a badass Klingon. He was shouting Shakespeare every other scene. He was, he was funny. And as far as my favorite recurring antagonist, I guess I would say Q. And I know, um, maybe some people might argue as to whether Q is an antagonist, but I think he pretty clearly is in terms of story structure. I think he's a wasted antagonist. I think there is so much potential in Q that was completely wasted in Next Generation. Um, but I still like him as a character. I think that the character of Q is absolutely fascinating and the Q continuum is something I, I kind of dig the idea of. But um, but boy, talk about a waste of, uh, of resources there. They really very poorly written. So anyway, there you go. Travis, would a bench press contest in the Sea Org go over well? Amongst the security guys, and uh, it probably would, because they were all trying to be buff and tough and, and uh, you know, macho men. But uh, otherwise, I don't think too many people in the Sea Org would care about bench press contests. All right, and that is our show for this week. Hey, guys, thanks for coming around and listening to me go on at a mad rate about all this. I hope my answers were interesting, informative, and entertaining to you. Uh, that is the intention here. I do want to help, and I do want to kind of do a little song and dance at the same time. So uh, anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this. And of course, if you are enjoying my channel and this is something that you would like to see me do and continue uh, to do, then please, please, please consider supporting me through Patreon. I really, really, really need the help and, um, and the support because it's really the thing that keeps these lights on and keeps this show going and keeps me uh, able to continue doing this work. Seriously, this is a 100% fan-funded activity, and you guys are my fans, my critics. Uh, so that's my plug. I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.